Father, I thank you for the songs that we sang this morning. Uh, they may not be um, very familiar to some. Uh, they've been around for decades, many decades. And we um, have messages in those songs that are needed today. Our world has gotten away from you. It's gotten away from your word. And many songs that are sung today are more entertaining than they are educating. They're more based on our feelings than they are on the truth. And so we need your help. We'd love to have songs we'd love to sing, but we need to sing your word. We need to focus on what's eternal. And so we open up with this little bitty verse today. We just pray for your help. That is the first step in the Beatitudes, that it would be clear, that it, we, people would realize they can't skip this one. Or the others mean nothing. And so we thank you for this time and thank you for your help as you work in us and through us to make us more like Christ and to be glorified. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. It probably wouldn't hurt if I wore glasses. I stumble around with them when I try to walk too much these days. You don't do that, do you? They're supposed to help, and they seem to get in the way. As we have the reminder from last week, we did an intro. The person sitting before this throng of people is who? Okay, it's Jesus. Who is he? Son of God. He is God. God himself is sitting down in front of them to teach this throng of people. Could have very well been... Um, right at the northern uh, slopes of the Sea of Galilee where they could, they could naturally slope down, where you could hear well. He, everybody could see him where he was sitting at, lifted up there, uh, if you've ever been over there. But it's God himself sitting in front of them, speaking and teaching. And we have been told that already in Matthew. 123, prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. That's who he is. Who do you think in that crowd realized that Jesus was God? Who's that? Maybe. Many of them were shocked about a lot of things. Miracles that he performed constantly had their mouths open and um, totally or fearful even about some stuff that came on them. They, they may have, but it seemed like many of them believed later. Some of them even... Much later, maybe even after his resurrection. But as they look at this passage, these are called beatitudes. Uh, it's just a fancy word, a, a declaration of blessedness. But it's, it's pro they're progressive, they're building upon each other. So when you get in here, you realize this is more like a stairs as you get into the beatitudes. Many people don't think that. They just think, oh, it's just nice flowery words. You read it, whatever type of get-togethers that make people happy. But they're actually built on each other. If you don't take the first step, you can't take the second. And we want to make sense out of that this morning as we look at this. But these are based on choices made. People are making choices today. So we look at 5, 1 to 3. I'll read the couple verses leading into it. And when he saw the multitudes, this, this loose crowd of people, he went up on the mountain or on the hill. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, and he opens up, the first words are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pretty straightforward. Pretty simple. Some people I read this week said, you can read this in 15 minutes. Didn't get around to it. Kind of a busy week. Barely got time to keep working on my message. But as you're looking at this sermon, it's not long. It's, it's such that you would love to have paused him at times and ask questions. And they do. And the disciples did that regularly after he taught. But in the process of looking at this, he starts off with this first step, this declaration, blessed are. This little word blessed is used repeatedly. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Verses, so nine times. You see the word blessed starting off the verses. The last one kind of changes it a little bit. But he's promising this blessing. This idea of being blessed is to be happy. Does that fit in with our day-to-day? -day? Why do people get drunk? Because they're not happy. 
Why do people take drugs? Because they're not happy. Why do people go to prostitutes? Men go to prostitutes. Women go to whatever they, prostitutes. Because they're not happy. They're looking for something that makes them pleasure, brings them pleasure, brings them happiness. This word says this is the way to happiness. This is the way to be favored, to be fortunate. I like the word spiritually prosperous because it covers a broad range here. In the Hebrew, it denotes a state of true well-being is the idea behind when they use the word blessed. So these individuals, Jesus right off pronounces them happy but gives them a criteria to follow. Not everybody in the crowd was going to be happy because he goes on to say that few there be that find it. It's a decision being made today. People think happiness is going into a, a, a pleasant situation where everybody likes you, where you're, you're constantly getting raises and recognized at work. Oh, that makes me happy. Where the, the policeman may pull you over for speeding, but he doesn't give you a ticket. Oh, that makes me happy. What's the problem with all these events in life? What's wrong with them? They're all temporary, and they're, is that the word? They're, they're worldly. They lead to dead ends. They don't, they don't work. This blessedness here is eternal, but it's also in the present. And this is why he brings out the idea of blessed are. It's implied, but it's implied because the next verb is also present tense. This is also, I want to stress to you, based on performance, based on your deeds. You have to do something to be blessed. Contrary to what you see in many religious circles today, when, when the man walks around and says, bless you, child, bless you, bless you, bless you. That's not what this is. And I don't know where that even came from. But it makes people feel good again, temporarily. Why, when I go back the next time, does he have to go, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you? Why do I need this continuous blessing from some man? This is the way to be blessed. And it's on people who act wisely. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is going to lead up to with the closing illustration of how you build your house. It's on you. You don't earn your way to salvation, but you make a decision. You're responsible. And so this blessedness becomes a reward, and it becomes especially a reward for humility, for total dependence and submission on God through faith. Humility is a key ingredient here with the idea of what he's going to discuss. To be blessed means fundamentally to be approved by God, to find approval from God. This is what Jesus did, pleased his father. This is what Paul did repeatedly, was not trying to be pleasing to men, but pleasing to God. This is why I'm going to cover and point out to you that I expect true churches to shrink in the coming days. Because you have a lot of people in every church, not, I shouldn't say I don't know how many, I'll leave out the lot. You have people probably in every church who aren't saved. Jesus had them all around him. They saw what he was offering. They saw who he was. They believed in the religious aspect of it, and so they flocked after him. Typically, as I mentioned last week, to be fed. Man, nice meal out in the desert. That's great. All-you-can-eat buffet. Fish and loaves. They didn't want the spiritual side of it. How do I know that? Because he told us that many departed from him. He told us that few there be that find it. He told us how other people would substitute other things to try to get that salvation. So if I put it in opposite terms, and I did write the unblessed. I've wrote, written uh, unbeatitudes. I'll share those as we get further along. But to be unblessed here is to be unhappy. And the only way you get blessed in this sense is to get it from God, to find his approval. The little word R is implied here, but it's an ongoing lifestyle. It's ongoing enjoyment. It's a position we receive because of our humility and because of God's generosity. Our humility and total dependence, submission, and faith, as I mentioned up above. God's generosity and his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his love. It's here and now. I don't wait till next week to be blessed. I don't wait for some circumstance to change in my life to be blessed. I am blessed if I am poor in spirit. It's just how it works. But you don't stop there. There are other blessings. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are gentle or meek. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The stairs keeps going, and God expects you to follow the stairway all the way to the top, but initially it requires this blessing be on those who are poor in spirit. And they get it here and now and throughout eternity. It'll keep going. Remember in chapter 7, as I mentioned here, I'll read it for you, verse 13. As he gets near the end of this message, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. We'll talk more about that. You have this broad road, the six, eight-lane highway leading to destruction. And then as a believer, if you turn around, you notice this little rabbit trail that peels off the main drag and goes up the hill, but you have to go through this little narrow gate. You don't take anything through it except yourself. We've talked about joking that people want to have a, um, their hearse pulling a U-hole so all their stuff can come with them. It doesn't work like that. So you're coming in here and you're putting yourself before God as some of these songs we sang this morning did and you have nothing to offer him. Many professed believers today are on their way to hell. Does that bother you? It is rampant. If you ever take the time to visit other churches on your vacation, I try to be somewhere on a Sunday. I learn so much. I want to learn and take in from it. But I've been in some that aren't teaching the truth. They aren't teaching from the word. They'll tell you some stories. They try to make you feel good. And there are many people professing salvation today. In America, if you give them surveys, used to be 80% claimed to be Christian. Can you believe that's true? Look at America. No. And I've lowered it and lowered it, and I think it's going to keep getting lower. So people want to say, well, a great multitude is going to be saved in the last days. This is being popularly taught on the radio by many individuals. That is not going to happen. There is nothing in Scripture that tells you a great multitude is going to get saved. Everything in Scripture turns it around and goes the other direction. Jesus said in Luke 18, as he talked about this, verse 8, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Just a little statement he throws out there. When he returns, when he comes back, is he going to find faith on the earth? Question mark. As you look into scripture, they want to claim so many. And Matthew 7, I just read, many of those who entered the road to destruction. 1 Peter 3, when you, in the days of Noah, only eight people were saved. How many people could have been saved? God's not willing that any should perish. You think God would have let other people on the ark? If they had become poor in spirit, if they had repented back in 417, if they had recognized that that boat, was, that ark, was the only thing that could possibly save them, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Yet only eight people got on. And so as he goes down here a little further on this first couple words, the, the, the problem here is that so many people don't know Jesus Christ because they never became poor in spirit. They want, to, they want to cut a deal. Like that old show on TV where we're talking about let's make a deal. What's your favorite old, old show? And you've got to pick between the doors. and You always got something. I don't know why anybody would go away feeling upset. You know, it may have been a herd of goats behind one of the doors, but you got something. But they want to do that with God. God doesn't cut deals. My way or the highway to hell. I provide everything you need. But you need something in your life that's missing. And this is what's missing as he moves on with the verse. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are beggars. They're poverty stricken. He uses a word here that means you are destitute. You are powerless to take care of yourself. That's what the word would have meant. Many people you see on street corners today are not those kind of people. I've made a decision a long time ago. I do not give handouts to people who sit on a street corner. What does God teach? If a man will not work, neither let him eat. I've offered work to some people that have been on the street corner. They look at you like you're crazy. They're beggars, but they're not destitute. 
They did a, a resume or a documentary. One guy followed people home at the end of the day. He, he sat off in the distance. He watched them go home. He watched the guy walk a couple blocks, get into his car, and then drive a little ways and go to his house. And when they finally confronted some of them, they, one guy said, I make $100,000 a year in handouts. Why would I work? Does that mean they're all illegitimate? No. But that's not how you get it, and this is the idea. When I see somebody, if I saw somebody sitting on a street corner that was blind, legitimately, one guy tricked me at a, a um, mall one time. I gave him a, a dollar for a little flag, and then I found him down at the end of the mall at the end of that day eating a hamburger with his glasses sitting on the chair next to him, his cane sitting next to him, and him looking me right in the eye and kind of smiling. I was only a teenager. He burned me. I learned a dollar is a dollar. But you lied to me. You deceived me. This is what's going on in our world today. Many people are figuring out ways to use the system. But God says what's critical in the first step, and he only blesses those who are poor in spirit. This is what he's trying to focus in on here. Look at uh, Revelation 3. We've been studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. We pick back up Wednesday night with study number the next one. 14, number 14, Wednesday night, there's some back in the packet there, but as you look at chapter 3, we've already covered this, and you back up a little ways to verse 15, talking about the church at Laodicea, this was missing, they were not poor in spirit, look at 315 of Revelation, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may, be, may not be revealed. And I say to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and... Repent, Matthew 4, 17. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. If you are poor in spirit. What am I acknowledging to God when I come poor in spirit? I need you desperately. I have nothing to offer. I haven't eaten for days. I'm emaciated. Remember, Talking to a guy on the coast one day with those sea lions. He was, he was bad off, physically bad off. And I didn't realize how bad until I shook his hand saying goodbye to him. I shared the gospel with him. I tried to reach out to him. He, he wanted money. And uh, I didn't share that with him because I didn't see that in real need. He had stuff. But he was decrepit. He was sick physically. And his hand had sores all over it. So when I shook his hand, I realized that's what Jesus would do. I realized I could catch something. But he needed the touch more than I needed to be kept whole. This is what Jesus is offering as he's talking to them. They have a serious need here. Just like the Laodiceans um, who didn't realize it, he was trying to tell them, you must be totally dependent. You must be destitute spiritually. Powerless to take care of yourself. Or you can't make it. Where do you find those who are physically destitute? Where do you find true beggars? Okay, you may have to go to a different country, because in America, those people go to the shelters. Those people don't sit on a street corner, because they may not have 24 hours left to live. They can't wait and hope somebody gives them something. They're destitute. So they may find them in a shelter, and some of you work with those rescue missions. We, we would find all kinds. That's when you found people at the bottom. Satan hates people who reach that level. He does not want you physically destitute because then you will look for help. And you will admit, I can't do it myself. So Satan's people typically are in churches. They're the ones that are well-dressed, well-provided for, and sometimes stingy. They don't really share with other people. I'm not talking about being stingy when I hold back from someone who could go to work. 
and trying to follow scripture and trying to help them. But what he's after here is when you look for those begging people who are looking for handouts, they're daily scrounging. You may see them around the trash cans. So where do you find those who are spiritually destitute? Not physically destitute, but spiritually destitute. Where do you find them? They're not acknowledging that. How do you know they're spiritually destitute? Not because you think they're not saved. How do you know when someone is spiritually destitute? When they're looking for a shelter, when they're looking for handouts to, to survive to the next day. Clothing, because they have nothing, literally in shred, shreds as they try to live life. Where do you find those people? I know where they go, the ones I've talked to. They go to church. How do churches respond when they come in all stinky and in rags? Many of them have mental issues. That's a whole different thing. But how do the churches respond to them? We'll meet their physical needs. What do we do about their spiritual needs? Physically, I can hand somebody a dollar or five. I can hand them some food, and we have out of the church refrigerator many times. I've made eggs for people and gave them to them. I've had people turn me down, which told me they weren't really spiritually or physically destitute. But they're hard-pressed. You know why? It is rare for someone to truly admit they've reached the end of their abilities. You find them in the morgue because they have committed suicide. One person waiting from the January 6th thing that was locked up, you just probably saw in the news yesterday, committed suicide. They're not being given any hope. When you come to the spiritual, spiritually destitute, you may have to look for them. You may have to have a relationship already with them so they're willing to admit it. Because what it does is it brings them to the bottom. When I'd go to the rescue mission back in the day, they were drunk and they were shot. But I saw people in the years that we went there, I saw people come out of their drunkenness and receive Christ. A guy that you could smell it and you could see it. I grew up in an alcoholic family. It was not something I didn't understand. But they would ultimately come out of that, receive Christ, and many of them, guess where they went to work? They went to the street corners and begged, right? No. When they really came to Christ, where do you think they wanted to minister? In the rescue mission. You'd go talk to all the people in leadership. Every single one of them had a story to tell where they had finally reached bottom and finally come to Christ. Do we like going to the rescue mission? We don't have one around here that I know of, per se. There's one in Portland. Another place we used to go to where you find people in the same boat. It's called the jail. We had limitations on us. The longer we went there, the closer they let us get to the prisoners. We just had a cell wall between us. We could walk up and actually hand them something and get in big trouble. But we were right there, 10 feet away, brought instruments, sang songs, shared a message. We saw people come to Christ with that, too. That was down in Dallas, Texas. It was also in Phoenix, Arizona. But it's not a comfortable thing to do. It's not very rewarding because most of them will not admit their real needs. And the people around you that are spiritually destitute, that really reach this level, are Klingons. You ever try to rescue somebody? I looked that up online again this week. What are the rules for rescuing people? Yeah, they had a bunch of them. But one of them was don't touch them. You bring a life preserver um, or life vest, something you can throw out there, even an oar paddle that will float with you out to them. You let them grab onto that, and then you pull them back in if they're still fighting. And then it went out of its way and said, well, if you're going to grab them by the neck and drag them in, make sure they don't have a neck injury. So they, they got practical on all of this stuff. But the, the issue is until those people are shut down, I mentioned this last week, they're dangerous. They will pull you down with them, into their drugs, into their sex, into their, their goal for, to make all the money in the world, whatever it may be. They're, they're dangerous. And so you come in here and you find those people ultimately at the feet of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit finally brought them where they needed to go. If they want him, if they're truly poor in spirit, that's where they will be found. You'll find them at church, but they won't go if they think they're going to be rejected. 
So it's not very common today. But I'll show you another thing that you'll find them doing. You'll find them reading their Bibles. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? What was he doing when Peter showed up? Why? What was an Ethiopian doing reading a Hebrew Bible? He had questions. He had needs, and he was struggling with that. When you have friends and family that have questions for you, glob onto them. I have one right now. You can pray for me this week that I follow up on that better. They've reached bottom. They're finally admitting, I don't know everything. They're finally admitting, I have needs that I think only God can meet. Or they may be ignorant and not know what to do with it. Turn over with me to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Very popular uh, parable here. The issue of being poor in spirit is be God-focused, not self-focused. Too many people, religious people going to church today are self-focused. When they leave the church, they roast the pastor, they complain about the music, they complain about the seats, they complain about the air conditioning, that it didn't work well enough, they complain that we didn't have a ministry for this or for that or this, and and so they're not going to go back. Those people are not poor in spirit. When you're poor in spirit, you do not complain at all. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus is ultimately speaking here, but Luke says, he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves, unpoor in spirit, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, and you could think, well, he's just being quiet and praying. Or you could think he's really just talking to himself. And he says, God, I think I thank thee that I am not like other people. Is that how you open your prayers? Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or over, or even like this tax gatherer. He used the guy right there in the in the room to, as a put down to make himself look good. And then he claims, he says, I fast twice a week. You know how often Pharisees normal fat normally fasted? Once a week. You know what the law commanded in the Old Testament? Once a year. So this guy's going, woo, look at me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Again, what was the requirement? It didn't fit that. It fit other categories. Verse 13, but the tax gatherer, the one who had ripped off people, who's probably a Jew and being used by the Romans to collect money, they hated him. He's standing some distance away. He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, and look what he's saying. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am poor in spirit. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The way up is down. If we don't live like this in the church, if we don't have a humility about us, then the question is, did you ever take the first step? Did you ever acknowledge that you were poor in spirit? That you had nothing to offer God and he deserved to throw you into hell and was totally justified? If you've never taken that step, you don't know him. That's how you get in. That's what the idea of repentance comes from, is I recognize my condition. I don't repent with some exceptions. Like I got a few things to offer that are good. You have nothing to offer as a human being who's a sinner. Zero. This is how you want to find the swimmer out in the water. You want to see, find them having just gone down. You don't want them sucking in water or causing another problem. But you want to find them just giving up when you get there so you can tow them in. That's when the rescue occurs the best. This is how God's looking for people. This is not how we want to find people. These are a lot of work. They're kind of like newborns. This is 24 hours a day. They could call you at any time with needs and requests and and silly questions. What what do the two-year-olds say over and over again? And then even when they're three? Why? 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 What do you expect out of a new believer? Why? 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 My three-year-old nephew, Christian, when he was three in the backyard of my parents, 
He asked me the question, who is God? And I sat there for a second thinking theologically, and then I thought three-year-old. And I went, he's the one that made everything. And the trees, the sky, the stars, everything, the green grass that you're looking at, he made everything. And he goes, oh, and he skips off. That's all he wanted to know. I didn't have to be some scholar at a three-year-old level to be able to explain that to him. It's the same thing with brand new believers, but they're going to be constant. And so it's like I've had people bring them to me, and I've told them straight to their face, sometimes with the person standing there, oh, no, you don't. You're not dropping your baby off on my doorstep. That's your baby. You're going to disciple them and bring them up in Christ. I'll help in whatever way I can, but they're all yours. They kind of looked at me like, how do you think you learn how to ride a bike? By your dad riding it up and down the street for you? How do you learn? You get on it and you attempt to ride it. It can be with training wheels. It can be the new bikes that have no pedals. They just kind of scoot along and teach us balance. You can do a lot of methods, but they have to do it. And they will fall down. How many of you remember falling down from a bicycle? Okay. Some of it's more traumatic. I hit my head, which explains everything. Because I, I hit something in the street and went over the handlebars and landed on the asphalt head first. Nothing wrong with me, though. You have to let them work at that. But it's hard. It's difficult. Some parents will never let go. We had a girl in our neighborhood growing up. Her dad would not let her ride out of the neighborhood on her bicycle when she was 13 years old. You say, well, I wouldn't let my kids either. No, it's back in the day when they didn't put razor blades and apples at Halloween. They weren't snatching everybody you could think of and broadcasting all over the news so you think everybody's being snatched. It was back in the safe days. Guess what she did when she got a little bit older? Ran away, moved in with a boy, got pregnant. That's how she learned how to ride a bike. The hard way. God wants us poor in spirit. So I look back on my life and I ask myself, what was I like? Did I come kind of making a deal with God? I'll take door number three. Here's my $50,000 I'll donate, and then you'll give me what's behind the door. Is that how it works? Oh, you don't have 50? Okay, here's five bucks. God won't take two cents from us. It doesn't mean anything to him, and it's a, it violates the very principle of what he's doing for us. We're destitute. We're poor in spirit. We can't do it on our own. I read a book, really good book. I've used it a lot, called Parables by Gary Inrig, 1991. Gary Inrig, I-N-R-I-G. But he shared in there just a little couple stories I want to share for you. He said, Billy Sunday once said that a proud person was all front door. When you went in, you were immediately in the backyard. It was all a facade. I've used the phrase oftentimes to say there's a lot of false storefronts. They come to church and they're always facing you. And they won't let you in the door. They won't let you find out what they're really like. How many of you you would admit you have a messy home? Okay, good, good. We're getting somewhere. How many of you clean it up when somebody's coming over? We're getting somewhere further. There are a lot more hands went up. Why do we do that? Why don't, we, why don't we respect those who live in the house already and clean it up while we're living there? Maybe the dog would appreciate it once in a while. Do we have a storefront to a limited degree? Maybe we don't go right into the backyard. Maybe there's a little entryway before we get into the backyard. But there's nothing there. It's a facade. And we always face them this way. We, we don't ever let them get around and look at the back. He, he also, Gary Enrig, Enrig brought this up. Joseph Kennedy, you know who he is? The father of Joe, John, Bobby, Ted. Here's what he said to his boys. He used to tell his sons, what you are isn't nearly as important as what you appear to be. How did his kids turn out? They want to claim one of them was one of our greatest presidents. 
debatable. All greatest presidents are debatable. Depends on your perspective and what you really know about them and whether or not they cleaned their house before you came over. Those things are important. But he set his sons up for failure. Put on a front. It, what you are isn't nearly as important as what you appear to be. So now it's coming out. I don't know if you've seen much, but they are blasting them now that it's 50 years, 60 years after the fact. Blasting them for their lifestyles and what they did. Don't ever tell your children that. Don't ever say what you are isn't nearly as important as what you appear to be. What you are is most important. It's whether or not you are poor in spirit. And then he shared one other illustration I'd like to share for you out of the, regarding the tax collector. He says this um, individual in, came into the temple to pray, according to Jesus' parable, a tax collector. His reputation was the polar opposite of the Pharisees. He was considered a traitor to the Jews, classed with robbers by the righteous and shunned by the respectable. Tax collectors worked for the Romans and had a well-imposed tithe on one's income. I'm sorry, well-deserved reputation for dishonesty read the wrong paper, and corruption. They were usually corrupt personally and unclean religiously. Whether this man deserved the reputation of his professional group is not stated, but his position and his posture reveal a man who wants to come into God's presence but feels profoundly unworthy. He stands at a distance. That is, he stays on the fringes as far as possible away from the holy place and from the place where the Pharisee had confidently taken his stand. His eyes are downcast, the body language of guilt. He beats his breast in a well-known gesture of grief and sorrow. In fact, he is acting as if he were in the presence of death. Everything about him speaks of humility, brokenness, repentance. Here is a man who has no illusions about who he is or what he is like. His prayer is hardly a prayer, but a cry of the heart. Six words in the Greek, literally, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He has not come to recount his merits, but to meet his God. There is a sense of desperation. I do not know what failure led him to speak of himself as a sinner, but clearly he has no illusions about himself. No excuses are offered. He knows that God does not forgive excuses, only sins. And he is also aware that only the grace of God can meet his need. Have mercy on me. Has behind it the rich theology of the Old Testament. The term he uses speaks of a place in the temple, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, where sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement to make it possible for sinful people to have fellowship with a holy God. This is not a generalized call for mercy. He knows he needs God to deal with his sin by making atonement. This, of course, precisely what the Lord Jesus came is precisely what the Lord Jesus came to do. Here is a man then who can see nothing in himself but sin, who seeks nothing of God but atoning mercy. He has no interest in comparing himself with anyone or anything apart from God. Is that who you are? Is that how you've come to Christ? If not, don't say, well, I think I'm in. It's been too long. I've known a number of people who came to Christ. One girl in our youth group, I think it was 20 years later when she finally received Christ, and I was shocked. Because she was religious. She wasn't a troublemaker. But she finally understood what she looked like before God. If one is truly repented, then he will be poor in spirit. Happiness is not found in honor or fame, riches or houses, pleasures or food, power or politics. True happiness, true blessedness is found only in humility. This is what's missing today. If you look at politics today, if you get accounts, if you catch people off guard in the news, and they'll broadcast it, the, the enemies on both sides will make sure you see those things. But humility is not one of them. Why not? Because that makes me vulnerable. That makes me lower in stature. I've got to prove to people, or to at least make them think with my storefront, that I am impressive. When I think of baseball, there isn't anybody who never struck out. And if you look at them, some of the best batters have pretty high strikeout rates. Why is that? Because they're swinging. 
The pitching has gotten more and more difficult. They're doing stuff today they didn't do when I was a kid. And the ball seems to just jump all over the place. And they're constantly faking you out. So the really good batters strike out. Should they throw the bat down and quit? No. If they have humility, I was watching part of a game yesterday when one guy threw the bat, threw his helmet, threw whatever else he could find to throw. And I go to myself, I wonder how many millions of dollars that guy's making. And yet he gets to throw temper tantrums. I know what I did with little kids when they threw temper tantrums. Throw them out. Throw the bum out. No. We would, we would have to take, well, sometimes we babysat and we couldn't touch them. But we would sit them down and get face to face and make them sit there until their attitude changed. And I'm talking about a, one kid, four, three or four-year-old. He learned. No, no, no. You don't throw temper tantrums in this house. And as I've shared with you before, when his mom came home, the first thing he did was throw a temper tantrum for two reasons. She didn't care. She wouldn't even give him the time of day. He was trying to get her attention. And she didn't want to put out the effort. Too hard. I kept telling you when I was teaching on the series, you want children to be well-behaved, it's going to cost you. But it only costs you in the beginning. You've got to be consistent. You've got to be loving. You've got to give them the truth. And you've got to hold them to it. No matter how long it takes. Some of us are a little more strong-willed than others. And they finally realize, I get dad's attention when I don't throw a temper, temper tantrum. And temper tantrums don't work out so well for me. Because if you're told to stop and you didn't stop, you got a spanking. Well, how's that go along with your temper tantrum? Uh, not so well. But we put a stop to it. We didn't sit there and tolerate it. We didn't ignore it. If we were outside in a restaurant, we would take the children to an appropriate place and deal with it. But they knew. Boom. That's why ultimately when they got a little bit older, you could just give them the look. The look meant you're going to die in five minutes <laughs> if you don't shape up. And they go, I know. I've died many times. And so I don't want to die today, so let's stop. Okay, we're good. Now, it may take into the four-year-old or five-year-old. It may take a little longer with some of them that are really strong-willed. It may take them to 30 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. What do you think God's doing with us? Have you reached perfection? Does God never, never spank you anymore? No, he's right on it. You try to throw a temper tantrum as an older believer, he's right on it. Picks you up, puts you in the chair, gets your eye contact, says no. You go, well, you don't let everybody else do it. Look at the world. They're all throwing temper tantrums. How come? They're not mine. Look me in the eyes. No. Then he walks away and you think, I think I can get away with this. How's God respond? Comes back with a paddle. Hebrews 12. He doesn't play around with us. But we got in because we initially acknowledged that we were poor in spirit. We initially came in the right way. There are many people today, and I'm really concerned, and I want to make sure when you walk out of here that you understand this is a serious need in society. How many churches in La Pine? 22 now. How many of them are full of believers? How many of them are full of believers who are getting the word? It's rare. A number of those 22 are cults. They aren't teaching correctly ever. A bunch of others had watered it down to entertain and to bring people in. As I said, I think the true church is going to shrink and shrink and shrink. And as it gets smaller, it'll get more comfortable, and pretty soon you won't clean your house anymore when somebody from church is coming over. You want to, you want to check it out? Come over to my house and check out my garage. You may drop in, and I'll walk you right out there. My wife doesn't even know I said that. Yeah. I will give you a helmet and probably, a, you know, some other protection. Canes to keep you from tripping on stuff. It's a used garage. It has activities going on in it. 
I can't get back to fix the workbench. So you just sit it somewhere. You sit it somewhere. You sit it. One of these days, spick and span. But that's not normal. After I'm dead, probably. God desires that we become poor in spirit, and he closes off with this promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The little word for is a causal conjunction. And basically, here is the idea. For this reason, reason or um, since theirs is the kingdom of heaven, they're blessed with this idea because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But they're blessed because they're poor in spirit. The result, the reward of theirs, we talked about the kingdom last week. As I go to Philippians 3.20 that I brought up to you, and I'll close off with these two passages. Philippians 3.20, I love this verse. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state. Oh, there it is again. You're trying to fix up that body on a regular basis and really impress people with it. I don't want to get into details, but I've known many people who have tried to impress me with keeping their bodies looking good at 50, 60, 70, 80, and it's like I want to tell them, just stop. Let it go. You know, take the hair off, take the weight down. There's some things you can do to be best for you, but quit trying to impress people by how you look. Impress people by how you act. Be poor in spirit and never let go of that. Let your humility, humility dominate. People get really upset. I used to um, have to learn a lot from that. When your children get out of line in that public situation or at church, or worse yet, they come up to you and say, with your child in tow, and they're gone, you need to do something with her. I'll change the pronoun. Why? Because you're the pastor, and your kids can't act that way. I dealt with it when it was appropriate. When I had kids outside throwing rocks at the cars driving by on the, on the road up here where we used to meet, I, I stopped it. Allegedly. Allegedly. When I saw a variety of things and the rules were broken and they'd come to me, I'd re be respectful and take them. But for me to be humiliated is improper. Because then it's all about me, it's not about my child. It's all about me, it's not about the people around me that are bringing this to my attention. If I'm poor in spirit, if I've come in humble, I need to stay that way. Quit trying to impress people. Have I dyed my hair? What hair? <laughs> Have I gotten hair plugs? Have I removed the, the um, moles on my body because they were, um, they were looked down upon, especially by girls? I have not, I've left my body go into its natural, decrepit state, all on its own. I can take a shower. I can work at losing weight, even though my cancer drugs tell me not, I can't do that. And so you, you're, you're working through this thing. But the goal is to be real. It's to be yourself. It's to recognize that Jesus Christ is the one who's perfect. Jesus Christ's garage is ideal, if I use that as a figure of speech. The new Jerusalem is going to be perfect. Where am I going to put my junk? Oh, yeah, I don't get to take it with me. So he's walking through here. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's already mine. When you go to James 2.5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Where's, where's your poverty? In spirit. Where's your desire to exalt Jesus Christ and him alone? These songs that we sang this morning. Impressive messages in those songs. Right out of scripture, much of it. Some of it hard to understand, maybe verses you didn't know. But as you're looking at this picture, it's Jesus Christ that we're exalting. It's Jesus Christ that gets lifted up. It's Jesus Christ who becomes the focus of our conversation and our lifestyle. It's Jesus Christ who gets the credit for whatever has happened in our lives. I know what I'd be like if I wasn't saved. Bad. Really bad. I was too stubborn. And I was too willing to fight. Christ changed me. Kingdom of heaven is a gift to those who are poor in spirit. It gets brought up again in verse 10 with kind of like sandwiched in with all the rest of this. But it's Jesus Christ as a focus. We need to be spiritually destitute. 
before you can get saved. Too many people don't understand that. You share the gospel with people and you say, oh, come as you are. Jesus will take you as you are. No, he won't. You've got to die to self. You've got to take up your cross and follow him. You've got to make him more important than your parents, your family, your money, your job. He takes priority. It'll cost you everything to come to Christ. And yet you can't pay for it. But you humble yourself before him and let him have his way. You admit your garage is a mess. You admit your sinfulness. You're spiritually destitute. I can't do it on my own. And he takes it from there. And then he's going to build on that as we look at these next steps. Are you poor in spirit? Is that a reality that you can point back to in your life? That God broke me and I admitted it. Maybe you stood up in front of everybody and told them. Maybe it's just in a smaller group. Maybe your friend said to you, what happened? What happened to you? Everything changed. I yielded my life to Jesus Christ. Is that what comes out? Or are you hesitant to be honest? You're embarrassed about Jesus. we got a lot of work to do. So we're going to keep building on these steps and coming back to these as we work through this process. Read chapter 5. Read the whole sermon in 20 minutes a day. Memorize it before we're done. You will if you read it every day, out loud especially. You won't have to work at it. But make Jesus Christ number one. And yourself, bottom of the barrel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder in this little verse of who Jesus Christ is. Total perfection. Total holiness. Why Isaiah, a prophet of yours, would say as he saw you that he, first thing, I'm a man of unclean lips. He had to stand out in his day. He had to be the impressive spiritual leader of his day. And yet before you, he saw his sinfulness. Father, may we see the same. May our prayers not be bragging about what we've accomplished or how much better we are than those around us. But may we come before you in reverence and in confession and in praise and thanksgiving because of who you are and what you do for us every single day. And may you alone receive the glory. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.